you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel chapter 18. Second Samuel chapter 18, and I will not read the first eight verses of chapter 19, but we will most certainly reference, I will most certainly reference the first eight verses of chapter 19, and we'll cover them in the sermon, so just be aware of that, but um, again, so we're going to be in 33, I think 33 verses this morning, and I only mention that because I am going to ask you if you're physically able to do so that you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word. It says this, 2 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, the whole chapter, going through the whole chapter, hear the word of the Lord given to us this morning. And David numbered the people that were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent forth a third part of the people under the hand of Joab and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I will surely go forth with you myself. Also, but the people answered, you shall not go forth. For if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die, will they care for us. But now you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it is better that you <clears throat> succor us out of the city or uh, provide help for us. And the king said to them, what seems, what seems best to you I will do. And the king stood by the gate side, and all the people came out of the hundreds and by thousands. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all of the captains charge concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim, where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David. And there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was there scattered over the face of all the country, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under the thick burrows of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heavens and the earth, and the mule that was under him went away. And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man that told him, And behold, you saw him, and why did you not smite him or strike him there to the ground? And I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a girdle or a belt. And the man said to Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, yet would I not put forth my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware that none touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I should have wrought falsehood against my own life, for there is no matter hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Then Joab said, I, will, I may not tarry thus with you. And he took three darts, three spears, in his hand, and he thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bore Joab's armor, so Joab's armor bearers, compassed about and struck Absalom and slew him. 
And Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing after Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a great pit in the wood, and laid a, great, a very great heap of stones upon him. And all Israel fled every one to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar which is in the king's dale. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and it, was called, and it is called to this day Absalom's place. Then said Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, Let me now run and bear the king tidings, how that the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You shall not bear tidings this day, but you shall bear tidings another day. But this day you shall bear no tidings, because the king's son is dead. Then then said Joab to Cushai, Go, tell the king what you have seen. And Cushai bowed himself to Joab, and he ran. Then said Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, yet again to Joab, But now, howsoever, let me, I pray, also run after Cushai. And Joab said, Wherefore will you run, my son, seeing that you have no tidings ready? But, howsoever, he said he, let me run. And he said to him, Run. Then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain and overran Cushai. And David sat between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall and lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man running alone. And the watchman cried and said to the king, and the, uh, and, the king told, and the king said, If he be alone, there is tidings in his mouth. And he came, he came at a quick pace and drew near. And the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the porter, to the gatekeeper. And he said, Behold, another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings tidings. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good tidings. And Ahimeaz called and said to the king, All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, which he, de- which he has delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I know not what, I, what it was. And the king said to him, Turn aside and stand here. And he turned aside and he stood still. And behold, Cushai came, and Cushai said, Tidings, my lord the king, for the lord has avenged you this day all of them that rose up against you. And the king said to Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, The enemies of my lord the king and all that rise against you to do you harm, be as that young man is. And the king was greatly moved and went up to his chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have now laid before us the text of Scripture, may you grant us wisdom and understanding, grant us favor as we pray for your spirit to attend to us uh, through the word now that Christ may be exalted and the text clearly proclaimed we ask for your wisdom and grace in this matter in Jesus name amen and amen thank you and be seated in 1949 in a remote area of Montana 
the place uh, called Man Gulch, 12 men lost their lives. When the wind had picked up a small fire and made it into a raging firestorm, and one of the one of the one of the three men who ended up escaping the blaze was the team's leader. He was the fire leader, and he watched his men trying to outrun uphill the the blaze. But he noticed that as no matter how fast they were running, the blaze was quickly outpacing them. And so he realized that they were going to all die if action was not taken quickly. So in desperation, the crew leader decided to risk a new method of control that he had heard. Instead of running away, he quickly stopped, turned around, and started another fire so that it would burn down the hill. Most of the other, he began calling for his men to come back to him and to be safe. So that he said there would be a there would be a, a blaze that would follow that would flow around them instead of overtake them, but most of the smoke jumpers thought that he had gone crazy, and so they simply began to do what their head told them to do and simply run. And he yelled after them, and he continued to call out to them and began to plead with them to return. And as the smaller fire burned down toward the main blaze, it in fact drew a safety zone behind it, and him and two others who did return to, were saved during this time. However, the twelve who refused to listen to the warning and the pleading of their crew leader tragically lost their lives in the fire. And I'm sure you've heard the saying, fight fire with fire. Well, truthfully, that's where this comes from not necessarily this specific incident but fighting fire with fire is you control a burn is set out and you control burn another portion to burn itself hopefully out and I think that as we've heard this phrase many of us would really I mean most of us would probably never really dream of doing something like this we think of fire as something to be doused as something to be to be taken care of with with water or else you're going to be burned alive. But sometimes, especially when the flames are life-threatening and lashing at our heels, the only survival strategy that works is to literally fight fire with fire. And this is where we find ourselves in the text this morning. David must now fight. He must now fight for his life. He must now fight for the lives of of the men whom he has long taken care of and who have been with him, side by side with him. They have watched over him and he them. They have now fled from Absalom and his rebellion. And Absalom is quick on his heels and about to overtake them. Hushai, God provides Hushai, this little fire who begins to burn round and about David to protect him while the hordes, and the onslaught of Absalom and this massive army began to descend upon David. David now fights for his life. And today I want us to see several truths concerning this victory that comes about from, of the king. This victory of the king that takes place this morning. The first place I want us to look, the first part I want us to see is the preparation for the king's victory. The preparation for the king's victory. Now we could even back up just a little bit, back into chapter 17, and we could say 
that Hushai was actually part of the beginning process of the victory of the king, and we would not be wrong. And we would say that God has provided, as we said last week, Hushai, right, to protect and to, to watch over David, to act as this, this smaller fire to burn itself toward the massive fire so that ultimately this fire would be, would, would, would be, would be these men that would be spared from this onslaught of this massive army. But in our text this morning, in chapter 18, we see David not only relying on Hushai, but we also see him doing something else. We also see him doing what David does best. He is a man of war. David knows war. If David knows anything else, David knows how to fight. And this is exactly what we now see David doing. David raises an army to defeat Absalom's army with the goal of sparing Absalom. And yet, in the midst of all this, and don't miss that, David, the king, though he is fighting for his life, he's fleeing from the sword, he is running and he is fleeing, we see this king raise an army, but not to slaughter them, not to slaughter the oncoming army, but to spare the man Absalom, his own son. It's an interesting and rather truthfully, from a, from a political standpoint, actually a very ridiculous strategy. Not the raising of the army, but sparing of the, of the anti-king Absalom, who is the usurper, who has chosen to seek to kill his own father. And so we see from this text, we see, I think, a couple different factors in David's victory that takes place. Some of them come from our text. I think some of them come earlier. But first is that the thing that Absalom has forgotten in all of this is that Absalom has no covenant with God. Absalom has no covenant with God. Absalom has put God into, uh, into a, a holding pattern. There's no thought for God, whereas David, David himself, God himself has made a covenant with David. And a part of this covenant that God has made with, with David is that he would give him rest from all of his enemies. That's what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 11. Absalom would not stand a chance in this fight to usurp the throne. God would defeat David's enemies by mere opportunity of covenant and by mere covenanting with David. And also we know that unlike Absalom, David was also a great man of faith. And yes, I, I realize David, as we've gone through First and Second Samuel, we've seen the heights of David's goodness and his blessing and his heart after God's own heart. And we have seen the depths that his, his heart of sin has led him into, haven't we? We've seen him murder Uriah the Hittite and commit uh, uh, an offense against Bathsheba. We've seen him do all kinds of things um, that, are, that, are not, that we would not consider glorious or good. And yet the Bible, one of the, one of the key elements to the Bible's authenticity is the fact that the Bible never glosses over the problems and the sins of her people, of God's people. It never glosses over the problems and the issues of God's people. And so it has laid bare for us that though David is a great man of faith, he has sinned and yet David has repented and is still a great man of faith. David has also, though, according to our text, he's also wisely used his time to organize his army split them into thirds, and is given each under the hand of a specific 
man, a general, a captain, one who has, is a man of war, one who's already known war, right? And these men are invaluable to him. They, are, they have protected him. And this vast body of people that have gathered themselves to David, having heard of Absalom's rebellion, have now gathered themselves to David, and David has now divided them up. And through the skillful general, generalship, he has scattered these men, has, has strategically scattered these men so that they would be able to meet this overwhelming force that was coming against them. And with a, with a few in relationship to the many that are coming, this great force that is coming against them, they will in fact defeat the greater force. David followed, and as a matter of fact, the principles. I think another, another reality for us is that in this, and understanding the keys to this victory, is that David followed the principles of, of delegation that Moses had learned, and David quickly does this. David follows Gideon's example when he divided his army into three companies. Right? David is repeating only what has worked strategically previously for both himself and for other generals that he has seen and has witnessed uh, through writings and and stories and other things, the, what is going on. And then there is, in fact, David hides his forces in the forests of Ephraim. And we're told, as a matter of fact, that this is sto- so strategic that the forest itself ended up killing more than the sword of David's army. David is a wise man. And he's given himself to wisdom, and therefore God gives him, as a result of being in covenant with him, and God has given him grace and mercy, he ultimately gives him wisdom and victory. And it's amazing here, like a lot of times we come to Scripture and we say, I wonder what miracle God is going to show us he's going to do. But amazingly, God often does the miraculous through the ordinary, and that's exactly what he does here. He does the miraculous through the ordinary. There are no voices from heaven. There are no stones or rocks from heaven that are poured out upon Absalom and his army. There's no band of angels that suddenly comes sweeping out of nowhere and kills all of Absalom's army. There's, there's, no, there's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no rocks just crumbling up and flowing down upon him. There's no magical or mystical rock slides. There's nothing like that. There is simply wisdom being employed. God uses the wisdom he has given David to divide the army. And through dividing his army in this way, David is able, by God's help and with God's help, to meet his enemies by setting a military ambush for his enemies and there overtake them. David knew the issues there in the forest. David knew about the sand pits and the animals and all kinds of other things. And so when they were, they were brought into the, the, the forest, the forest did exactly what David knew the forest was going to do. God used the forest and he slaughtered more there than he did with the sword. So the preparation was set and then we see the victory of the king in verses 6-8 in 2 Samuel, don't we? And we see that as a result of of God's using David's wisdom and the wisdom he has given him, David's forces ultimately defeat, meet and defeat Absalom. They meet and defeat Absalom and his forces. After all, God is with David and with his forces, right? God is with David. God is with the forces who are going to be be meeting uh, Absalom's army. And these three companies... All together, they meet together, and they, they are able to come. But don't miss the fact that while I said there's no, 
mystical or, or, or miraculous miracle that comes flailing out, the invisible power of God is still turned clearly against Absalom. God's power is clearly turned against Absalom. By using the forest, God begins to kill many, many people. The, for, the forest does what, what it does, right? And so it is an amazing reality that God, though God doesn't do great miraculous things like parting the Red Sea, God does in fact turn his power against Absalom and his army. And I would say to you, my brothers and sisters, I know that in this life it is often easy to feel overwhelmed and like you're simply just tired and you're running and you're running and you're tired and you're sick and you're sick and tired of running and it seems like all of the forces of this world is against you. But my brothers and sisters, let me remind you that the God who is the God of David is our God as well. And no matter what we may be facing this morning, no matter what we may what no matter what attack or tribulation or trouble or issues that we may be facing, the same God who is with David and overcame the great obstacles and, through, and defeated the enemy, the great enemy, Absalom and his army, is the God who fights for you who are in Christ. He is the one who has defeated the ultimate enemy. He is the one who has brought you to himself through Christ. He is the one who has fought for you and the one who is for you in Christ. He is the one whose supernatural hand is with you. He has not slacked in his care for his people throughout the centuries. He cares as much for us who are in Christ as much as he did for David. And my brothers and sisters, it is exactly because of David's greater son that we can make this statement. It is because of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and lived sinlessly upon this earth, who was in fact sinless in every way, who gave himself up as our ransom and as our propitiation for our sins, that we can take refuge in Christ and know that our God is for us and our God is with us. And this should give you hope. I pray this gives you great hope, believer, because no matter what it is that you're facing, relational troubles, cancer, anything else. Just because troubles meet us in our life does not mean that God is any less with us or that God is any less for us because God ultimately cannot be defeated and God is going to accomplish the work that he has purposed from long ages ago. And God ultimately, as a result of, of this of this, this massive army that comes against David and his smaller army, God clearly judges the rebels. Absalom and the rebels are clearly judged in this time. The 20,000 20, of the men who join with Absalom die in this rebellion. And it is important that as God's people, I think we should remember God's faithfulness in, to his people, but also I think we need to remember to be faithful to proclaim the beautiful message of the gospel. That is that anyone, that this isn't just reserved for the 20,000 who joined with Absalom and rebelled against God's anointed king and against the will of God and, and the, the declared purposes of God, but that this is the fate of all who will not bow the knee to Christ. Those who rebel and will not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ will die in their rebellion, but they would, they would wish that that were the end. But the reality is that it is not the end. They will there meet God in their rebellion, and God will pass judgment upon them. 
But we who are alive must proclaim the beautiful message of reconciliation of through Christ. We must proclaim to sinners who are and rebels as we once were the beautiful message of 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 restoration of ref, of 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 God making a way to bring us to Himself. We must warn and call and plead with those who are apart from Christ that they would be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We must call to sinners, recalling, recalling to them the danger that awaits them to repent and to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is, after all, the great commission the Lord Jesus has left to us, to go and to make disciples of all nations. And let me say this once and for all, the commission God gives will not fail. The commission that God gives will not fail. We who are God's people go in the power and the authority of Christ knowing that though all hell is unleashed against us and the de- all the demons in hell should come against us, Christ is greater and his message is still the power of God that saves sinners. And God uses regular means to show his power often in our lives through, as with David's life through wisdom so that whether it be through troubles or tribulations or situations that we find ourselves in, we are called that whatever place we find ourselves in to look to the one who delivers us, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to God our Father, to our triune and sovereign God, who does all for his great and does all for his glory. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. Do we give glory to God for his work in our lives? Do we honor him for the work in our lives? Do we remember the work in our lives, his work in our lives? Are we careful to give him praise and glory and honor in our lives? And ultimately, this is ultimately, this this scripture ultimately does point us here in 2 Samuel chapter 18 to the the greater war that, that, that God has ultimately already won that is symbolized, Absalom simply symbolizes for us the reality of the one who has already been defeated at the cross, the one who has already been defeated in the cross and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the enemy of our souls, none other than Satan himself. And like Absalom and his army, Satan has been defeated in the cross. And there is coming a day when Christ's victory will once and for all be revealed to all mankind. And so we rejoice in Christ. We praise God for Christ. We praise him for the victory that he has given us in Christ. And God has, in fact, overcome all of the enemies of our souls, not just Satan, but our own sin and the, the, the value systems of the world. God has overcome these things. Thirdly, I want to point out, the usurper is judged for his rebellion his rebellion against God and his anointed king. And we find that in chapter 18, verses 9 through 18, don't we? Remember, Absalom is, remember early on in this, in this uh, narrative that we've been given that's laid before us here in the scriptures, what have we found? We have found that Absalom loves his hair. Absalom once a year cuts his hair, right? And it, it weighs uh, several hundred shekels, right? And he, 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 he's a beautiful man, right? The Bible tells us this. And so he now finds himself, though, caught up by his own vanity and his own pride. He is caught hanging by his head, right? Whether it be by his, whether it was that the forest simply caught him by his neck or by his hair, it just says in the scriptures he was caught by his head. 
But we know that Absalom was nonetheless caught. And there Absalom hung between heaven and earth. He hung there. He hangs on a tree. And in hanging on the tree, it is revealed that God himself is cursing Absalom. Do you remember what Moses, what God told to the prophet Moses in Deuteronomy 21? That anyone who is hung upon a tree is the subject to his curse. Now, ultimately, we know that points us toward the Lord Jesus Christ. But here in our text, don't miss the fact that, that we are being told that it has been recorded for us that Absalom literally hangs from a tree suspended between heaven and earth. God's word doesn't just give us details for the sake of giving us details. There's always specific reasons for the details that God gives us. And in this meaning, it was exactly what he's already told us in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction. And God has chosen to curse and to destroy Absalom once and for all. And just like Absalom and his destruction that is ready to come upon him, we know that all who are enemies of God, who will not gather under Christ, will meet a similar fate. Like Absalom, throughout Scripture, like Absalom, Joshua hung the, in, the king of Ai on a tree. Moses warned that any person hung on a tree was subject to a curse. And so the curse that Absalom now receives points us to the one who was ultimately, though, cursed for our very souls. He is the anti-Absalom. He is David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who for not for the sake of his own sin, but for the sake of the sin of God's people, hung crucified upon a cross, and there symbolized the curse of God that had come upon him for the sake of the enemies of God, so that the enemies of God could become God's children. Absalom dies for his own sin. Jesus dies for our sin. Jesus dies not for his own sin, but for the sin of his people, because he loves his people. But Joab quickly, having heard of Absalom's curse and hanging there, Joab quickly says, hey, why didn't you kill this guy? To which the young, the young man, the young soldier says, hey, Joab, you are not a very good man of a very good moral repute. So I know that if I had taken my hand up and I had killed him, you would have turned against me, told the king, and I would have, I would have forsaken my own life. I would have forfeited my own life. I'm not going to do that. And Joab says, well, I would have given you so much. I would have made you a rich man. And the, the young man was wise enough to say, I don't care how much money you give me. I wouldn't have done it for all the money in the world. And so Joab becomes angry and furious. And he takes up three lances. And he drives them, we're told, into the heart of the young man, Absalom. Amazingly, after Joab strikes Absalom... Three of the lances still there, right, hanging out of the young man's chest. He is still alive. His heart doesn't quit beating. And so Joab finishes the work. And he calls for his armor bearers and he says, come and kill this man. And so they do. But God, God chose that this would take place because Absalom was ultimately judged for his rebellion. Not against David, but against the Lord. Against the Lord. And Absalom was not just seen, in his cur seen as cursed because of his hanging from a tree. But what else happens here? Is he given the burial of a king or a king's son? No. He, Joab takes him. 
and he throws him in a deep pit, and he commands all these men, hey, just grab what, as many big stones as you can, just start throwing them in this pit, and they cover the pit up. He is cursed. He is cursed in his burial. Or he is cursed in his death and in his burial. And so there's a public rebuke in all of this to all who would ever dare as a as a as as uh, serves as a warning against all those who would dare to perhaps rebel against God's anointed king. And if any of this is striking similar chords in your mind, right? It should because this is ultimately the message of what book? This is all ultimately the message of the book of the victory of Christ in the book of Revelation. The king is anointed. The nations rebel. The king puts down his enemies. The king reigns and rules. Right? This is all the message of the book of Revelation. It's an amazing, it's an amazing reality for us. The Lord Jesus Christ is, a, is a obviously not like Absalom, but is a good king, a better king, far better than David, far greater than any king. But then ultimately we see God, God overcoming the enemies of the nations and declaring his victory, the king's victory over the nations. Just as, Jacob, uh, just as, just as Abishai, excuse me, just as Ahimeaz and Cushai celebrate the king's victory. And we see that in verses 19 through 33. After all of this has taken place, he sends out his runners and they run, they flee, right? By the way, the word good news is used here in this text four different times. I don't know if you've noticed it, but it's found in verses 25, 26, 27, and 31. There are four different times when, when the phrase good news is referenced, four different times in this account. Four different times. And all of it being in the defeat and the destruction of the armies of the rebellion and Absalom's death. David, as a result, doesn't see this as a great victory, does he? He doesn't see it as a victory. What does he see it as? He begins to make a funeral dirge out of it, a funeral song, a song of mourning. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son. Is it right for David to mourn over the death of his son? Yeah, absolutely. No man, no man should ever have to bury their son. No woman should ever have to bury their child. And yet, it is right for him to mourn in that sense. But it is not right for David to mourn as we see, as you go on to chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, you see Joab, right? It's, it literally says that as David is mourning and wailing, the, the returning army hears this after fighting and saving David and, and all of those that are there in the city with him. They just sort of, they sort of just, just slink back into the city. There's no joy. There's no rejoicing. Joab becomes furious. He goes up to David. He slams open the door and he says, I'll tell you that if you do not stop this now, there's not a single person who will remain with you. And in one of the only times that Joab was ever right, Joab was right. Joab wasn't right very often, but Joab was right in this, in this instance. And the enemies of God will face similar realities. The good news that Ahimeaz brings to David wasn't necessarily Absalom's death, but rather of God's victory 
and David's victory because the Lord has provided it. And so Cushai comes and he runs. And he runs and he comes and he brings news of Absalom's death. It is amazing here we again again catch a glimpse of David's problems. And what do you mean? What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is David once used his authority to condemn a righteous man to death, Uriah. He condemned a righteous and good and godly man to death. And he killed Uriah the Hittite. But he now seeks to use his authority to keep his son, who is a revolutionary, alive. And from death, and from the death penalty that he rightly should taste for his rebellion against God. David's perspective is completely ruined throughout all of this. And it is not until Joab sharply rebukes him that David comes out of his mental stupor and he realizes he's been wrong. But in all of this, provides for us, like Ahimeaz and like Cushai, we too are runners. We too are runners. We are runners and proclaimers of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. The king's vict- our king is victorious, and his victory is both complete and total. And upon the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God the Father secured the victory of God over all of his enemies. And it is now that we await the day in which this will ultimately be revealed. And until then, we are called to go and make disciples of all the nations. So how would I summarize all of this? Well, let me summarize it like this. Four, four things quickly. There's a strong warning to passive parents. Don't be a passive parent. David's parenting strategy should not be followed. David is the result and the reason why his son is where he's at. A man can show tremendous tenderness even toward his own children and still rob them of what it means to be a, a follower of God. He can raise them poorly, in other words. But I will say this, we must also not honor our children above the Lord. I once had a lady, I sat down with her and was weeping with her over some of the choices of her own grandson. And during that time, the more we talked, the more, we, more I shared scripture, the angrier she became until the point that it became very clear to me that she was not going to honor the Lord's will in this particular situation. And I was right. And at the end of the day, do you know what she said? Here's what she said. Pastor, I know it's wrong, but I love my grandson. And I know what God says, but I can't help that he's my grandson. Do not place your children or your grandchildren above the Lord and above honoring the Lord. Let me say something else. It's, it's, it, is a right, it is right in saying all of this for parents, though, to grieve over their wayward children because not just ungodly parents have wayward children. Godly parents have wayward children. And we're not, we are simply responsible for training them in godliness. Ultimately, we can't be responsible for the choices they make But while we must never stop loving them, we cannot enable them to make bad choices. Because ultimately, even the most godliest of parents 
can have wayward children. And ultimately, they need Christ. But there's also a warning here to rebellious children. Absalom is a reminder to us of those who dishonor their parents and the subsequent consequences of sin. That God will not be mocked forever. And then there is a warning here to the arrogant and the prideful. To those of you who do not know Christ, there is a warning here. Judgment will eventually fall upon all who reject the Lord and rebel against him in their pride and in their arrogance. And remember this, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, God commands us now to humble ourselves before him, to repent and turn to Christ. And that is the calling this morning of God to his people and to those who would hear the gospel call this morning. Let's pray. Father, our prayers now are that Christ would be exalted and glorified as we take this that has been presented and Take it to our homes and into our lives and show forth our, show forth our, 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 uh, our faith as, as, we, as we who love Christ. May you help us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that, that even though we may have fallen and failed as parents, God, there's still grace for us. Even as, even as grandparents and great-grandparents, there's still grace for us. And God, we thank you for the grace that even though we may have failed completely, God, we thank you that in Christ there is both forgiveness and there is help. But God, I pray for those of us who are still training our children and teaching our children that we would be faithful in doing that. That those of us who may be here who are, who are stuck in our arrogance and our pride would no longer be stuck in our arrogance and our pride against Christ, but rather would humble themselves and come to flee to Christ by faith in grace. And Father, we pray for your sovereign work. We pray for your sovereign hand to be upon us and work as you will for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name.